at the, I came out of my room, which is over in the Meta building, at about 7.25, coming up here to hear the talk. And I looked up from uh, up the hill, and there were just an inordinate number of people all clustered out on the patio. You know, there are usually people out, but they're doing different things and so at the back. But more than usual, people on the patio. And some people walking, some people standing in the sun, some people sitting on the rim with their legs hanging over, looking out uh, in this direction, some people looking out uh, down into the valley. And the light was just right. The light was beautiful. It was just, just probably like today, but the sun was exactly right, and the temperature was exactly right, and the wind was exactly right. And everybody, I looked up, the moles were running in and out of their, uh, those, are, those are voles, actually, I think. They're running in and out of their hill. I thought to myself, this is really the Garden of Eden. This is really beautiful. I saw everybody standing out there, and I thought, I really thought about Sangha. I thought about the community that you are. I thought this is a peaceable kingdom and the peaceable Sangha. You know, these are the people who have come together for this period of time to practice living in a peaceful way, practice really touching into their peaceful heart. And I thought about how no one can be doing this practice alone. And I meant that really uh, seriously, that we need other people around. We could, it's, it's of course sometimes very supportive when you don't feel like sitting or walking to have people around, but more than that, there are some people who are very steadfast and can do a private, solitary hermit retreat. But really, you have to have people around in close quarters to practice metta, because you have to have somebody to be annoyed at and get irritable at, and watch somebody eat too fast or walk too slow or do something or other that you can have an opinion about. So in a certain way, you really are all integral to everybody else's practice. So I thought, I really I want to start by honoring Sangha, and particularly today, community. Particularly today, because uh, we've been working with neutral person. And uh, you presumably all chose somebody neutral. Maybe you chose somebody from this group. Uh, my experience in being in retreat is when I come on retreat, there are always a lot of people that I don't know. So they start out neutral. And that by and by, as the retreat continues, they all become quite dear to me, even the people who walk too slow and eat too fast and do all those other things, as I really get a sense of them as people having a life, just as I am. I think the presence of Sangha around reminds me when I'm practicing, it reminds me when I'm here, it reminds you, I'm sure, that we're all going in a certain direction. You know, forget what the what the point of this is, that if I were to become distracted and forget what I'm supposed to be here doing, everybody else here is doing it, and I'd be reminded of it. I got an email this morning from uh, uh, that I, I thought I'd uh, share with you. Actually, I, I phoned my friend tomorrow who had sent me this email, and I said, this is such a good metaphor, I'm going to read it in... Uh, the talk tonight, but I, I won't say your name. I, I wrote her an email, and I said, I won't say your name because I haven't asked your permission. So she wrote me an email right back, said, say my name. So uh, tomorrow, tomorrow has had a difficult year. Just a year ago, just now, 
she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And in this year, she's had surgery, she's had chemotherapy, she's had radiation, and she has been pronounced as having a durable cure now. She seems quite well, all in this one year, but it's been a very, very intense year. So we had an email exchange about it, and she was talking about the kindness that she had felt, the support that she had felt from, from Sangha, from community, from everyone who really supported her. And she said, uh, I was reflecting on this year, and I remembered the game I reluctantly played as a child at birthday parties, pin the tail on the donkey. I didn't like the game because I didn't like to be blindfolded, spun around three times, and left on my own to find the donkey. I was often one of the kids whose tail was on the opposite side of the wall to the donkey. I didn't like that in this game. You had to clear the way rather than give the person help and direction. Do you remember that? And pin the tail? You just get out of the way of the staggering person. You don't... <laughs> she said, fortunately for me, this year could have felt like a marathon game of pin the tail on the donkey, but it didn't. I had all of my beloveds who were right there, and they did not let me flounder. I got very close to hitting a wall, but I didn't. I have prayers of gratitude. So I, I, I really was thinking about you all standing out last night and wanting to talk about the value of Sangha and community, the importance of everybody around to not only not get out of your way, but to keep showing you the direction. So I thought, because I, I knew I wanted to talk about the Metta Sutta, that if I had a name for this talk, it would be the Metta Sangha and the Metta Sutta. And I want to really honor the, the role of uh, Sangha. So then I'll tell you the second part of the story is I walked up and I looked up and everybody and it looked so wonderful and I felt so buoyed up and I said, this is really the peaceable kingdom. Look how peaceful everybody is. First I had the thought, look, everybody is so peaceful. Everyone is enjoying the birds and the view and the flowers and the smell. And the second thought I had is, how do you know what's going on with these people? <laughs> They're just standing there or sitting there. You have no idea what's in their mind. And I thought, I remembered that many, many years ago, my friend Mari Stein, who's a wonderful cartoonist, does Dharma cartoons. You see them in the inquiring mind from time to time drew me a, listened to a Dharma talk I'd given on the hindrances, the five hindrances, which you heard about the other night. And she drew a cartoon for me, which I have framed and in my house. And the cartoon is meditators sitting. They're all sitting on the floor. They all have serene visages. And over everybody's head is a big balloon. <laughs> and with bubbles from the balloon to the person. So you know they're not saying this. They're thinking this. This is the contents of their mind. And over one person, in one person's balloon is um, things that you would lust for, uh, palm trees swaying, uh, ice cream cones, um, enjoyable sensual pleasures. The second balloon is a war, cannons firing and guns going off. And the third balloon is just all uh, sort of uh, uh, blurry, and uh, you can't see clearly what's in that balloon. And the fourth balloon 
is a volcano exploding, <laughs> which is uh, her rendition of a restless body, but it's a volcano exploding, which is what restlessness feels like when you feel consumed with restlessness. And the fifth balloon is a bunch of qu- um, question marks in it for the doubting mind. You know, what if this? What if that? Is this? Not that? And usually in Mari, Mari has made me any number of versions of that picture. And usually it's got a sixth meditator and a sixth balloon, and nothing is in that other balloon. And they're all sitting there, and they all have the same face. And when I used to teach about that, um, I'd say, about my cartoon, I would say, you know, I look out sometimes at a group of people, and I try to imagine what's in the balloons over everybody's head. Sometimes when I've talked to people, I know a little bit what's in their balloons. But the thing is, what's in my balloon changes with the wind. You know, my balloon blows over on somebody else, and their balloon blows over on me, because as you've been watching all week, you see that mind states are very labile. One false move, I think to myself, I can be in the best possible mood, and then I have a certain thought, poof, my mood is completely collapsed. It's like, they're really, it really likes the mood of balloons. And like someone comes and goes, they blow on the balloon, and it's off you and on somebody else, and you've got somebody else's balloon. <laughs> so I was thinking about, I was thinking about uh, that the conditions here, because the balloons are what has captivated the attention. When there's a balloon there, the attention is captivated in the balloons. I thought to myself, I wonder if. Uh, Anybody's looking around. I'm looking at all this beautiful scene, and the the moon uh, the moon is just setting, and the the hills and the deer, and I'm realizing that it, when my mind is uh, filled with any when, when my balloon is there with any activity going on it, I could be anywhere and miss it completely. The conditions here, I think, support the balloon flying away. If we're going to continue the balloon metaphor. Because the conditions here catch your attention. They're so beautiful. And the balloon staying where it is depends on your paying attention to the contents of the balloon, not the contents of this moment. Really, the balloon staying there depends on keeping telling yourself the story about what's in the balloon. That's what weighs down the balloon, and it stays right there. If you stop feeding the balloon with stories, the balloon lifts off and goes away. When I get up, caught up in the story of my balloon, I could be in the Taj Mahal and not notice it. <laughs> I could be in the Garden of Eden. Um, it's just like ducking out of what's happening now and running into a movie theater and starting to see a movie. And say, all of a sudden, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm walking along minding my business, but here's a movie theater. I could just step in <laughs> and see a movie. The movies that I duck in and start to see are usually retrospectives that reruns <laughs> of something. Usually not good, you know, usually not good. Or they're previews of something that hasn't yet happened and might not, but might be frightening me in case they do happen. And I can actually do a lot of balloon work. I, I can actually do a lot of uh, 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 skill-necessary behavior while on automatic pilot doing the balloons. I can uh, drive a car and do balloons, and the car drives itself. I find myself home. Who drew? 
who drove? You know, someone drove the car. I, I, you know, I sometimes joke. I say, my car drives by itself. It knows where to turn. And it does drive by itself. The body drives by itself. It sees certain visual cues. Meanwhile, I'm in the movies telling myself some story. And I looked, uh, I, I thought about the time when I was a child. Uh, we'd go to the movies on Saturday afternoon. And uh, there'd be a, a, a cartoon and a double feature, so you spend a lot of time in the movie. And it was always surprising to me that the movie gets, is, the theater is quite dark, but you get accustomed to it. And then you'd walk out at 4.30 and it'd be so light outside. And I had that same feeling about when I, f- when I forget the balloon and it floats away, what's right here is so light. And it's so revealing of the truth. I thought last night, when I went back and I thought about this, and I was thinking about it today, I was thinking, if I were paying attention last night, there's so much dharma just standing on this particular patio. You look at the moon. If I look at the moon, as I do every day, I like moons, and I see it's waxing now. You see that things change all the time. Everything is impermanent. The moon was gone. Then we got a little moon, now we got more moon, today we're going to have more moon. If I think about the fact that uh, when we were here in May, the last time teaching, these hills were uh, green, and now they're brown. It's another impermanence. Everything that's born dies. This grass was fresh, and now it's gone. If I look at the, um, uh, some more dharma, I look at the bird's nest over the, over the supply room right there near the restrooms. Um, those birds have been such a source of uh, excitement to us over the years. We're all of us so pleased that we do the May-June routine because in May, the birds are building the nest and then we come back in June and we can see the birds. And uh, we get such a, uh, an excitement, I'm sure you do too, about the way that these birds, these swallows, have once again craftily outwitted the caretaker's attempt (laughs) to keep them from building nests. You see those little plastic things that are up there? They're not supposed to build nests. And there's something something thrilling about these determined birds, despite everything, building nests. Last year, Sally and I caught a caretaker with a ladder under his arm on the way to dismantle a nest up one of those flights of stairs. They, you know, the caretakers here are wonderful. They're good people. And the swallows are a little messy. They, they mess on the floor. So here were the caretakers with the best of intentions coming up to dismantle a, a nest. And Sally and I rush out simultaneously from adjoining interview rooms say, what are you doing? <laughs> and the poor caretaker crept down with his <laughs> ladder. And he left. And from then on, those birds were our birds. We had a special interest in them. And we could hear them, and you see them flying in and bringing stuff. And then all of a sudden, one day, you see little heads sticking up over the top. And you think about it, we were so invested in those birds. You think to yourself, the whole of Woodacre is full of swallows building nests, but they are not our birds. These are our (laughs) birds because we have invested energy in them. And it's a great Dharma lesson, because really it's what we're talking about. If you bring love and attention to something, it becomes yours, and you care about it. If you think of the intention of metta practice, to really practice loving what you didn't formally love or think about loving, 
it builds that capacity to be in the habit of loving whatever you need. And then it becoming dear to you. Imagine how this world would be if everyone and everything in it were dear to everyone. Every, then everybody, everybody could get excited about their swallows and their neighbors and their neighbors just across the invisible lines that we call country boundaries. And we could have a different world. The force of life is so exciting, you know. Think about life continuing itself on against all odds. And also seeing what's here won't be here forever. Really getting to recognize that now is the only moment in which we can cherish something. Just before we leave the scene outside, just in case you didn't, you, you missed those voles in there. You watch them, they're running in and out of their holes, and they're so diligent about the digging. You know, they're just digging away, making piles. I actually imagine that that mound out there is growing, you know. I thought that they are making a mountain out of a vole hill, which, <laughs> which they are, but which is just what we should not be doing in our own minds. You know, they're supposed to be digging, we are not. And I watch my own mind seize onto something, to continue that metaphor. It seizes onto some aspect of my life that's challenging, and then it starts to tie itself in a knot, fixing it, tying it, worrying it, fretting it, staying alarmed about it, getting mad at it. Actually, I think that mostly what happens when anything is a challenge there's a little bit of resentment that comes up in my mind. I get mad at life for challenging me with something or other, whatever it is. And I get in a grumbly mood because something or other is difficult. It's not supposed to be other, you know. If I had my wits about me, if I could remember what I know is true, I'd know that life is difficult. It's supposed to be difficult. Everything is constantly changing. That's the first noble truth. Everything is constantly changing. Life from the beginning to the end is one long series of accommodations. Things will happen just as they happen. It's ridiculous to be annoyed at life for presenting us with challenges. Someone once said to me, uh, if you wanted a life without challenges, you came to the wrong planet. That's not where it happens, how it happens here. But I can see my mind sometimes tie itself into a knot of fret. And in one moment of loving appreciation, happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was driving in for my Wednesday morning group. And I, again, driving on automatic pilot, thinking about something or other, some conflict in the mind. And I drove into Spirit Rock, and you know, you come around the curve near the horses. And I came around the corner, and there was a veritable herd of turkeys walking across the road. And uh, they're so improbable looking, you know? <laughs> The deer, okay, but turkeys, you know, you think, what was God thinking? None of their parts, and it's so startling to me all the time that they can walk with their funny distribution. So all of a sudden, I was laughing at the turkeys, and I could feel that the grip that my mind had had on whatever was the problem of the moment got released. When the grip gets released, it's not that the problem falls away, it's that the problem is part of the whole world, which includes solutions to the problem and turkeys and other things that aren't difficult. It's only when the mind narrows in, zooms in, 
and clamps on something and says, fix this now. It's got to be different right away. Then I suffer. So one more use of the balloon. It's like kind of a balloon of preoccupation, I decided I was going to call it. When the balloon disappears, when the preoccupation is let go of, the balloon disappears, it flies off. And then in that place of much more information than just what's in the balloon, wisdom normally and naturally reinstates itself. When you think of the things that we know that are true, everything passes, I'm not in charge, I'm not responsible. I'm not, I can't change it. What I do makes a difference, but what everybody does makes a difference, so it's not completely dependent on me. It's no one's fault. When I realize that about anything, those are things that are always, and it's going to change. Whatever it is, it's going to change. Those are the things that are always true. They're just always true. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom reinstates itself in the mind. And so it's interesting because I think we think about becoming wise when my mind is clear. There's a lot of wisdom available in it. When it's all clouded up and clenched up, any wisdom I have is not available to me. It's like someone drops a curtain in between. All of a sudden I can see again. I say, oh yeah, this will be all right. I'll work it out. Other people do it. It's just life. I feel grateful in those moments. I feel relieved. And I find myself connected and caring again, because that's the peace that always happens. I care about myself. I even care about my own discomfort. I th- sometimes I, when, in that moment, some, sometimes when I think about it, my mind is great, and I think, ah, oh, I was so caught in that story. Now it's okay. Two minutes later, the story might come back. But then I think the story in a different context. I find my mind starting to tighten up. And I say to myself, sweetheart, you're in pain. Relax. May you be peaceful, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering. Instead of struggling with the stuff, I say to myself, I have my stuff. It's back. That same stuff, I thought it was gone. Ah, it's back. May I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be free of suffering. My own heart consoles me. That's true for everyone, but it only happens when there's a certain amount of clarity in the mind so that the heart can remember what's true. When it remembers what's true, it responds with kindness. That's just what happens. So I really wanted to talk about the metta sangha and the metta sutta. And you have a metta sutta in front of you. We've been chanting it every night. And I love it. I take very few things with me when I travel to teach in other places. And I actually don't need to take this because I know it by heart. But I get to a place and I Xerox it and I give it to everyone. Because it's not so long ago. I always loved it. I loved it even before I realized that it is a complete teaching of the three aspects of the path. That it's a complete teaching of Sila Samaripanya of um, virtue practice, morality practice, the cultivation of the mind, and the arising of wisdom. I used to think, as a matter of fact, I I remember saying this, and I'm a little chagrin now, 
I used to think that it was somewhat incomplete because I, 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 um, I knew that what it said was, wish all beings that they may be at ease, happy, no matter what. And I would be a little glib about it. I said, you know, I get it that the, the Sita says, this is what you should do, wish well to all beings. It doesn't have any instructions, how should you do it? It doesn't, and in, indeed, there aren't technical instructions for how to do it. It doesn't say what you should do if people are difficult or if uh, people have uh, caused you a lot of pain or if you're having trouble for you. It doesn't give any of the technical instructions. It just says do it. But it, in the do it part, in the center part, which begins with the word wishing, which is the cultivation part, it really does describe what we are doing here. Just keep wishing well for all beings. And in the part before it, that leads up to that, in the first uh, four, eight, twelve lines, are really the cultivation of uh, virtue, of morality. And the last nine lines, I think, are a description of what happens if you do that cultivation. So if you pass the prayer wheel and spin it on your way up, you pass the Eightfold Path. Right understanding, right aspiration, which are really the wisdom parts. Right action, right livelihood, right speech, which are the uh, sila part, the morality part. Right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness and right concentration, which are the mind cultivation part. And they are all in here as well. What I like to do, and when I get a chance to do it, is uh, to pick out certain lines and talk about them, kind of an exegesis of text. And I want to tell you in advance that the most exciting thing for me to find, and it happened again uh, today, just when I sat down here, maybe as I was writing at the very last minute, that this is always new to me. I've done this so many times, and I always start with a new paper when I'm going to do it because I read it and it sounds different to me every time. It's, it, it's pregnant with meaning in a certain way, so that I bring a new heart to it and a new mind to it. And if I read it out of that heart and mind, it says new things that I never got before. One of the things that I realized as I was looking at it today is I usually start in the beginning of it, and I won't. I was going to start at the end. I start at the end, beginning, usually, first of all, because everybody starts in the beginning, usually that's the way you read something. Also, because I really do love the first line that says, this is what should be done. I just love the authoritative ring about that. Uh, years ago, there was a sweatshirt that you could buy from a catalog that um, was the answer to the question, what you presumed was the answer to the question, uh, why should I do it that way, or something like that. And the writing on the sweatshirt was, because I'm the mommy, that's why. And at the time that I read that, uh, I was, and with young children, so it appealed to me. But I love this, that the Buddha says, this is what should be done. This is it. It doesn't say maybe this is a good idea, or if you think about it, you might want to think about it, consider. This is what should be done for those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. And I'm thinking about, even as I say those to you, that skilled in goodness is, this, is synonymous with knowing the path of peace. Skilled in goodness is the path of peace. 
behaving out of a place of impeccable goodness with attention to it is living the life of peace and spreading the spreading the teaching of peace well now I started from the beginning maybe I should do it that way <laughs> I didn't mean to all right well I did it so it must be a reason to start from there uh, but I actually I also like that this is what should be done this is what should be done because it's such a it's so inspiring with confidence you know trust me this is what should be done for those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace Sila, I think, soothes the heart, knowing one is living impeccably. There's a very lovely uh, phrase in Buddhist teaching. It's called uh, the bliss of blamelessness. Do you remember yesterday when we did uh, the forgiveness meditation in the afternoon? And uh, people brought to mind uh, people who had harmed them that they hoped that they would be able to forgive. But we also brought to mind our own things in ourselves that we felt badly about. And people have said to me today, throughout the day, I am my own most difficult person. I have much more trouble forgiving myself than other people. It's much easier for me to look at this person or that person or the other person who hurt me in some way and for me to understand that you know, things happen, they probably, they undoubtedly weren't seeing clearly. Uh, it was just, and they weren't seeing clearly because of what had happened to them, just them, and in their whole life. And I can see in everybody else that they do something and it couldn't have been otherwise, they couldn't have done differently. It's easy for me to forgive them. And actually have compassion on them because they couldn't have done differently and probably were in pain when they did what they did and probably are in pain now because they did what they did. So compassion for them is not, so, is not hard. But then they say, but for myself. Somebody asked that question this morning. They said, you know, I can do, I can actually forgive everything that I've done in the past that I've remembered, that I've kept up with, that's presented itself, but I'm keeping on doing more stuff. You know, no sooner do I finish. Fooey. I did something again, and I did something again. Because when we become distracted, we behave um, without um, uh, impulsively rather than intentionally. We respond, we react rather than respond. I was very, very impressed when uh, all of last week, I remember telling you the first night we were here, about how profoundly inspired I was by Ajahn Sumedho and all the monks that we hear last week. And um, particularly, by the way, he talked about the discipline of the monk's life. And it's very complex to be a monk, it's, and, and you never get a day off from being a monk. So once you ordain, there isn't like a day off from the rules. You do those rules every single day, forever and ever, to the rest of your life. And so the, the rules that you see clearly about what you wear and how you eat and when you eat and the time of the meals and all of that. But lots and lots of other rules that, uh, that people learn and have to keep. So that there are rules governing really what you ought to be doing in every situation. And there's a way of thinking about it and think, oh, 
you could never lead a life of spontaneity like that, you know, so you have to think so much. But he talked about it in such a loving way of having the pleasure of, a, of such clear guidelines of what should be done now and now and now and now. Maybe some of them about pieces of um, actions that, you know, are not so commonplace or not so important in the sphere of the whole life, or if we didn't do that rule, it wouldn't make such a big difference. But the idea of attention keeping awake, because you have to be thinking, what can I do and not do now, makes it clear to me, or at least I understood it as, if my intention is awake because I'm thinking of all these rules in my mind, then my attention will be awake to the, my attention will be awake to the intention of my heart when I do any action between me and anybody else. And I'll catch myself before I do something that I'll later feel badly about. So I could see how all of these disciplines are a way of keeping the mind waked up in the service of being able to see clearly. James mentioned it when he was talking about the instructions to Rahula, during, before and during and after an action. Is this for my benefit and the benefit of all beings? If my mind is alert, then I'll know in advance, don't do that. I'll read the whole of the sila part to you because I really want to talk a little bit about the last two lines. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward, and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. By the way, contented and easily satisfied so far for me um, resonated the most as I read that to you. I love to tell people because I read it somewhere. It's a small piece of uh, uh, tangential trivia that Paul Revere, who was a a jewelry maker, a silversmith or a goldsmith, made his wife's wedding ring and inscribed in it, live contented. You know, I just love that. I wish someone had told me when I got married that that was a possibility. That, you know, people usually write, I love you or forever. I, you know, I like what it says in my wedding ring. But live contented. Live contented. It's completely an, an understanding of the second noble truth that the cause of suffering is an insatiable need to have this moment be different from what it is. That's the second noble truth. It doesn't say it exactly that way. It says the cause of suffering is tanha, craving. But what I understand that as It's not a wish that it were otherwise. We lots of times wish it were otherwise. It's too cold or it's too hot or it's too this or it's too that, a little uncomfortable. And the thought comes in the mind, I wish it were this or that. Because we're we're comfort-seeking animals and we do wish for comfort. It's not the wish to have something. Uh, I wish they wouldn't have so much of this kind of thing for lunch. I wish they had the other. We do. But it's the insatiable need to have it be other. I can't be content unless it's this way. So contented and easily satisfied is really the whole of the Dharma. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. I love that unburdened by duties. You know, I, I, we don't live in a in a. Um, 
culture that thinks about unburdened by duties. And, you know, I, I, I'm amazed at everybody walking around the street, talking on the cell phone, working all the time, instant messaging everybody. Frugal, that's not frugal in their ways. You know? <laughs> I think that the mind has to settle down a little bit. I think about cultures where they still have a Sabbath, where people have one day off from doing business. I think that one of the things that we do here is we have a, like a seven-day Sabbath. This is like a seven-day Sabbath. No working, just being. No creating, just being. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I, I understood that in a new way when I read it this afternoon. I, was, I had been thinking of that line as uh, not doing the slightest thing that the wise, meaning like some council of elders or some, uh, some jury of people watching you, that, uh, oh, I'll find out, and somebody out there would later find out who knew better than I and would reprove me. I actually begin to think that it means that the wise in me, when I discover that I've done it, would later reprove, that my wise would later reprove. I am convinced yesterday when we had that um, um, exercise where I asked you to uh, bring to mind uh, or allow to come to mind uh, things that you may need to forgive about yourself. If you remember, I said you don't have to look for it. By now having mentioned it to you, it will arise in the mind. I have a feeling that the mind is in some ways, and this is uh, maybe the way I like to think mechanistically, but it reminds me very much of uh, the Google in my computer. You tell it something, find me this, and it does all the research in the whole world, and it gives it to me. I, I think my, my, uh, my mind and my heart, which I think are the same, are some kind of computer like that. And that if I sit down quietly, it's a signal to them to tell me what I have to relook at and get to do again. And say, okay, you got a little time now? Here's what you did, not so cool. So just would you mind looking at it again? It's a, um, it's a searching and, it's a thorough and searching moral inventory without asking for it. That it just happens by itself. Doesn't it happen to you when you sit down? You come here, James told the story, Guy told the story, both told the same story, that in the middle of an, a retreat, feeling perfectly happy, not asking for it, into their minds came the 10 and the 20 most upsetting things that they had done in their whole life. That's the mechanism of the heart. It's meant to do it, it's programmed to do that. I think of this practice as the purification of the heart. So I think it's I, the wise, later reprove, that the wise would later reprove, and then we get up to the practice part. This is the practice, wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. You know, that's what we're doing here, whatever living beings there may be. We started with ourselves. Uh, I think that's good psychology, 
that uh, I think the Buddha knew that that was good psychology, that you actually, not only are we our own most dearly beloved, everybody really, we're wired to take care of ourselves. We're meant to take care of ourselves. Even if we're annoyed with ourselves, we want ourselves to be well. Those wishes, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free of suffering, they are the fundamental wishes of everyone's heart, really. We care about other people as well, but we're wired to care about ourselves. And we care about our kin. We care about who we adopt as kin. Things become dear to us, and then we take care of them. It's part of the genetics, I think, to begin with. And so when we practice in this week, we start with ourselves because that's where we really want to be well and a benefactor because it'll bring out our loving capacity. We're really grateful for them and actually metta depends on gratitude. Actually, when I'm not grateful for myself, for being, uh, doing what I did or who I am, I'm grateful for a life where I can change myself. So grateful gives me the space to connect again with caring. And then we go out today to the neutral person, and everybody knows we'll get up to difficult people. And then we'll get out to all beings everywhere. And, the, and, and in truth, I think, it's, I think it's, again, just part of the nature of human beings. If we hear that some disaster happened on the other side of the world, we're quite moved by it. We care about it. We you know, follow the news about it. If we were to hear that it happened in Petaluma, it would be a different story because we know people in Petaluma or we live there. On the very moment of the earthquake in 1989 was the earthquake. I remember where I was and the people that I was sitting with. I was actually indoors in, in, uh, talking with some people in a room and all of a sudden, shake, 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 shake. It was very strong, stronger than anyone I remember. And one of these two people said, you know, we're in an earthquake, let's step outside. So we stepped outside, and it shook for however long it shook, and then it stopped, and everybody looked at their watches. And the first thing I thought about, well, where are all my people right this time? Because they were all, I, I, all of my family lives nearby, and many of them go to work or were at school over bridges and on highways. And I needed to look and see, where are all my people? And the first thing I thought about were, well, where are all my people? And then you go and look at the television and you care about all the other people. But before the television, you think, where are my people? I think that's in the wiring. I think we all do that. So this is wishing in gladness and safety, may all beings be at ease through all of the people. I think it recognizes the fact that we have preferential loves. But I think it actually uses the fact that we know how to love preferentially to wish for everyone. And it's actually not that we will love everyone, but that our capacity for loving will be completely open, that we won't be barred in any way, that we won't say, well, you know, I love everybody, but not these folks and these folks, or that group of folks, or this group of folks, or my brother-in-law, whatever it is that, you know, that there's something left about. It's tremendously hard. I found this a very important practice in the last six months of intense, last year, two years, five years of intense political feelings. 
that I needed to really watch not putting people into a group of people that I didn't have an open heart about. Not that they will suffer from it, but I will suffer from it. That my heart will not be in its most natural loving form. I will not have the pleasure of a benevolent heart if I have a view that these people are not worthy of including in my heart. I can disagree with a view, but I don't have to put them out of my heart. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. This is poetry. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen or the unseen, those living near and far away, the born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise anyone, in any being in any state. That's a huge instruction. I used to think, where are the instructions? That's the instruction. That's it. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. What's really important about that is is for me to have gotten to realize that when I find myself wishing harm on another, I catch myself. I think about so-and-so that did this and this, and I start to think, uh, really, uh, uh, if not malevolent, a belligerent thought, uh, a recriminative thought, and certainly not a friendly thought about that person, if I really check, my mind does not feel good with the presence of a bad thought in it. That if I continue that thought, sometimes I th- somebody mentioned it, the, the righteous indignation thoughts, but I'm right and they're wrong and, and I'll tell them and I'll fix them. They have a certain kind of power in them. You feel very excited about it, especially if you're right and they're wrong. But in fact, they're very painful. That any time I have a bad thought on anybody, it's a very painful thing. And it's a normal thing when someone frightens you or startles you. You get mad at them. I mean, we start, and I startle easily. And the startle response makes an angry response. It's also in the physiology. Like you startle an animal and they attack you. So we are also animals. So to overcome the startle response, to actually to catch myself in the middle of an ill will thought and say, don't do that. Do something else. May I be contented and pleased. May my physical body support me with strength. May my life unfold smoothly with ease. If my, if my wishes of well-being are enough in my mind so that they are the, the, the iconography of my mind and heart, then if I say, oh, wait a minute, I don't want to do this. I want to do something else. What else should I do? It's right there. I could always do that instead. I'd rather do that. I could just say that. I don't have to say it for the other person. I could say it for myself. I should say it for myself because in the middle of a bad thought, I've made myself uncomfortable. And a hostile thought feels painful. But none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. We become everybody's mother. And it doesn't matter your gender, you know. 
We become mothers. I think the mother image is here because we think of mothers having it wired into them to take care of babies. And it is, in fact, and it's in their genetics and it's in the hormones and all of that. But I don't think it's gender-based or gender-exclusive. I think we could all become the mothers of the world. Freed from hatred. I'd like to say that this is where I think that's the instruction part. That's the, that's the mind cultivation part. Samadhi. Really do that. And we, we think about right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. They all require tremendous attention. They're all the same. Right effort, keep in the mind what's wholesome, put out what isn't. Cultivate in the mind what's wholesome. Do not cultivate what isn't. Right mindfulness, see clearly what's happening right now, all the time. Right concentration, cultivate that steadiness of one-pointed attention. That's what that is. Because you need all of those to catch the ill will thought, to catch the um, thought that despises or the, even the smallest intention to deceive. And then I love this. This is, the, this is what happens. What's the result of practice? This is how wisdom manifests. Panya, freed from hatred and ill will. When I, 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 I read that today, I, I thought to myself, that's actually such an amazing thing to think about. Could you be freed from hatred and ill will? could have a completely sweet mind, could not resent anything, not recriminate anything. If I could do that, if any of us could do that, I think that's what an enlightened person can do, then you can actually look at everything as the amazing karmic unfolding of this moment, this person, this event, this whatever it is happening, and really worship it, be thrilled by it, appreciate it. Say, wow, hallelujah, look at this. It's an amazing thing, this karmic unfolding that we are all a part of. It would, dis- it would erase all the stories I have of separation, freed from hatred or ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By the way, uh, abiding is a wonderful word. I, I, Brahma Viharas, which are the names of what we call uh, that package of uh, metta karuna uh, mudita upeka, loving kindness, compassion, uh, appreciative joy, empathic joy, and equanimity are called Brahma-viharas, which literally translates as the abodes of the gods. It's a heavenly place to live, heavenly realms. You know how we say their rebirth will be in heavenly realms. My rebirth moment to moment will be in heavenly realms. I don't know about rebirth into the next life from my personal experience, but I know about rebirth into the next moment and the next day all the time. When my mind is not is free of ill will, really in a loving mood. I am reborn into a heavenly realm. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, 
I love that fixed views. It's I was thinking of so many fixed views that we have, from the little fixed views I can't do this, I'll never make it, to the fixed view that I'm separate from everyone else, to the fixed view that things need to be different in order for me to be happy, to any view that I have that sets up conditions. I cannot be happy unless. Maybe I, th- I remember realizing one day, and maybe it was a turning point in my Dharma career, where I thought to myself, I do not have to be pleased in order to be happy. That was such an enormous piece of understanding. Maybe happy is the wrong word there. I use contented. I don't have to be pleased in order to be contented. That my mind can be peaceful, and I can be unhappy with what's go- unpleased with what's going on. And then I can take the peaceful mind and try to change what's going on, make a difference in my life, and make a difference in the world. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on July 12, 2005. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.